Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the technology that lets us continue to serve you in the teaching of your word in spite of whatever might come along. The days are different from what we are used to, Father, and we are all um, reeling from the changes, trying to make sense of them, trying to understand what you're doing. And Father, in, in what you've put in your word, we know that these kinds of things and much more will be coming for the world uh, as we know it. And we know, Father, this is a part of how you prepare us for something far better. And Father, I ask that as we go into the word tonight and as we prepare to study, our hearts would be directed toward these future things that are far more important and away from the day-to-day concerns that are in everyone's mind right now. Help us, Father, to see beyond today by what we learn and to be excited for it, for one day we will be there, and we long for that too. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have now spent 14 lessons, and by my count, 20 weeks, studying the seven years of tribulation through the book of Revelation. In fact, I did a little math, and our study of that seven-year tribulation required about 5.5% of the time that tribulation itself will actually exist. And in any event, we are now ready to move beyond tribulation and into the events that come after that. Now, if you remember, we started our study of tribulation in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, And we did so because in those chapters, Daniel gave us the roadmap for that seven-year period that we just finished studying. And in that roadmap that Daniel gave us, when he told us there would be this period of history, he called it the age of the Gentiles, or uh, Jesus called it that, uh, it would end, Daniel told us, with a seven-year period, a seven-year period that we later came to know as tribulation. And That roadmap of tribulation told us that Christ's return to earth would be the event that brought tribulation to an end. So tribulation followed the removal of the church at the end of the church age. Uh, Then in the chapters that we studied in Revelation 6 through 18, we looked at the events of tribulation. And then we just finished Jesus's return, which is shown in chapter 19 of Revelation. And At this point, you would expect that because the Lord has returned as all anticipated, as Genesis 3.15 anticipated, uh, as the ancient world and the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings and the apostles, as everyone expects and everyone has been anticipating, now we've reached that moment. Jesus is back. And so now you expect us to talk about the kingdom, the time of history in which we'll be free of war, free of injustice, free of pandemics for that matter, and a time when we can enjoy our inheritance, right? That's what we're gonna go talk about now. Well, if that's what you thought, you'd be wrong because we have some other things we need to do first. Uh, Before we get to the kingdom, we need to study a period of time that precedes the kingdom but follows tribulation. And specifically, we need to learn about something called the interval uh, or some call it the 75-day interval. Interval. This is a period of history that's sandwiched between the end of tribulation, which we just said was marked by Jesus' second coming, between that and the start of the kingdom that we're anticipating, the thousand-year kingdom that we'll study about soon enough. This interval bridges those two periods of time. And inside that period of time, a number of things have to happen in preparation for the inauguration of the kingdom. So that's what we're studying tonight. 
And by way of introduction, I need to revisit Daniel with you just for a moment, back in chapter nine, to look at one verse which gave us this broad outline for how the tribulation would proceed and how it would end. You'll remember this, I'm sure, Daniel 9, 27. Daniel said this, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, and in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So Daniel told us in that verse that there would be a week, a Shabbat, which literally means a seven-year period, that would end our current age, and as you remember, we studied this, that seven-year period that ends our age is also called tribulation. And the event that kicks off that seven-year tribulation, Daniel just told us in this verse, will be the signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. So that's what starts this seven-year period. And then that covenant allows the Jews to begin to sacrifice again in a newly constructed temple or tabernacle or whatever they can put together quickly on the Temple Mount. And then the angel goes on to tell Daniel in that verse that at the midpoint of that week, or let's just say at three and a half years into that period, you'll reach a pivotal moment in the middle of tribulation. That's the moment when Daniel says, the sacrifices that had been made possible by the covenant will now be put to an end by the same one who allowed them in the first place, which we now know is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will assume this new and dangerous place in the world. He'll take over the world as the supreme leader. He'll put an end to sacrifice. And then finally, Daniel's verse goes one step further, and it says this will continue until a destruction is poured out on that one, on the Antichrist. And that happens, of course, when Jesus comes back. So Daniel tells us that the anchors of time for this seven-year period are at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. And earlier in Revelation, we learned that these halves on either side of the midpoint in the seven-year tribulation can be counted in a number of different ways. 42 months, or that well-known phrase, time, times, and half a time. Or a third way it could be counted was in days. And so one half of this seven-year period could be counted as 1,260 days. And so the tribulation is two periods of 1,260 days. And now we have finished our examination of those two parts. We, we studied the whole seven years as Daniel lays it out. Now, why am I doing all this? Well, because at this point in Daniel's book, he gives us another way to start counting after the seven years is complete. And that's what now guides our study in this period called the interval. We find that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And Daniel says this, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to 1,335 days? Now, that's different numbers, different counting than we've been seeing before. In verse 11 of that passage, Daniel refers back to one of those familiar anchors that we just talked about, the midpoint anchor in chapter seven, I'm sorry, in uh, the seven-year tribulation. 
Daniel says, start counting again from the point that the regular sacrifice is abolished. But then he says, from that point, you're gonna start using new math, so to speak. We know that from the midpoint to the end is 1260 days. But you notice Daniel says that we should count from the midpoint 1290 days. And at 1290 days, he says, at that point, the abomination of desolation that has been set up in the temple will finally be taken down. Now you remember this abomination. This was the image that the false prophet set up at the midpoint of tribulation in honor of the Antichrist. And he gave this image power to uh, speak and to do things where we assume that was done through demonic power. And that image set its, was set up in the temple because the Antichrist didn't stay there, remember? He moved around, and yet the temple was supposed to be his home. So unlike God, who can truly be everywhere at the same time, the Antichrist couldn't do that. So to substitute, he puts an image of himself in the temple, and he leaves. And that image is what the world was told to pray or to worship in the uh, temple. But of course, now Jesus has come back. And Jesus is going to set up a new temple, and that's where he's going to live in the time of the kingdom. So he can't have this uh, statue, this memorial to the Antichrist, still standing in that temple from tribulation. So the abomination has to be put aside, has to be taken out of the temple that's there, has, the temple has to be cleansed and a new one prepared. And Daniel says the time that it will take for that to happen is 30 more days after the end of tribulation. That's why he counts to 1290. But then it gets even more interesting because if you notice the next verse, verse 12, Daniel extends this timeline one more step. And Daniel says, those who are blessed of the Lord will be those who wait and attain to 1335 days. So we have 1290 from the midpoint to the end of the abomination. And now we have a new period of time on top of that, another 45 days. And these 45 days, he says, are for those who would wait and attain to something. So what is it they're waiting for? What are they being blessed by? And so on. Well, the additional 45 days will be a period for identifying those who may enter the kingdom and giving them the eternal bodies that they need when they go into that kingdom. Those who are blessed will be those who receive a new body in the resurrection and will walk into the kingdom. And that period of time is a total of 1,335 days from the midpoint of tribulation. Now, who are these that we're talking about? Who has to wait for resurrection? Who's been uh, looking for this? Well, remember the church saints, you and me and anyone else who believes in this period prior to the rapture, to the resurrection of the church, uh, we have already received our new bodies. That, that's what the rapture is. It's, the Bible calls it the resurrection. It's the moment that the church receives their new eternal bodies. And we, therefore, are already with Jesus on the earth in eternal form, ready to live in the kingdom. But there are principally two groups of saints who have yet to receive their new bodies, and they need them if they're going to participate in the kingdom. You can't be in the kingdom, which is an earthly-bound kingdom, it's a part of the world we live in today. You can't be in that place without having a new body. So you have Old Testament saints and you have tribulation saints who have yet to receive their new bodies. Remember in the scene of the uh, wedding, uh, the wedding moment between the bride and the groom, between Jesus and his church, uh, you have 
invited guests in that moment, according to Revelation 19, and we said those are the saints who had yet to be resurrected, principally Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. The tribulation saints were also seen under the altar in Revelation 6 with nothing but their souls. So here again, we need to get them new bodies, and you have a 75-day period now to, to accomplish two broad goals, and I want you to see how they come out of the text of Daniel chapter 12. On the one hand, you have 30 days to cleanse the temple and the abomination. And I make a presumption here, which I think is a fair presumption, that it also involves the cleansing of the entire planet, that is, the preparing of the earth for the purpose of us to live in it. Because a cleansing of a temple and a preparation of a temple implies that the earth and everything around it is ready for the Lord to occupy the land. And then after that, you have 45 days in which to resurrect judge and reward those who are blessed to enter into the kingdom so that we all enter in together with what we're supposed to have. So we're gonna look at these two periods tonight, the 30 days and the 45, in what the Bible has to say about what goes on in those two periods. Let's look first at the 30 days. This is the time of repairing and cleansing the temple, and as such, this is the period of time in which we're gonna also see the biological extension, the earth fixed. Look, to put it simply, the earth has become the greatest fixer-upper project that has ever been seen in the creation because you have the judgments of tribulation having resulted in a global natural disaster of biblical proportions, literally. And at the same time, this earth, the one that's in ruins at this point, is the very same earth that has to exist for the kingdom. And that's the first thing we need to look at. So for the 30 days, we're gonna look at this period of cleansing and repairing of the earth, followed by a look at the resurrection of the saints and the rewarding of what goes on for them. So we start tonight in the 30-day period in Isaiah chapter 65. So we're looking at the 30-day period, and we go to Isaiah 65 because I want you to see that the world that we will live in in the kingdom is the same earth we have today, although of course it will need to be repaired. And Isaiah says in chapter 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And it goes on from there. Now this passage is speaking about the thousand-year kingdom the period of time we're about to study, and Isaiah, Isaiah says as you start into that period, it has to be created new. He, re- he mentions this creating of the earth and heavens new, and our English translation here is not very helpful because in the way it's rendered in English, it kind of sounds like he's saying it's a brand new earth, uh, a brand new heavens. In fact, this confuses some Revelation study uh, students because you may remember or know that in Revelation 21, where we're going next, in that chapter, John begins to describe an entirely different world that is in fact a brand new one. And he says, a new heavens and a new earth. And the similarity of the language there, at least in English, would make you think that perhaps Isaiah is talking about the same thing. But a better way to render the Hebrew that Isaiah writes might be to say, creating heavens anew and earth anew. That is, this is a renewing of the heavens and the earth, a making new of something that has been ruined, not a brand new start of something that didn't exist. 
And if you look at Revelation 21 and what John describes, and you look in comparison to what Isaiah describes, they describe very different places. For example, in in the one that uh, John is describing in Revelation 21, which we're gonna study, you're talking about a world that is fundamentally and radically different than the one we have now. I mean, it's, it's not even shaped in the same way. Uh, it doesn't have seas, it doesn't have uh, darkness, it doesn't have uh, uh, sun and moon and the like, and yet those things do exist in Isaiah's description in different places. So the world that Isaiah is talking about is this world, just made new again for our sake. And the universe has to be made new because if you remember from the judgments we've studied, not only is there, you know, the mountains laid low, the cities are destroyed, there's no mountains, there's no fresh water, there's no salt water, uh, it's all been turned to blood. There's no sun, moon, and stars, they were all taken away. I mean, the place literally has very little going for it at this point. So the, the remaking of the earth is a necessity if we're gonna live there. And in Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, we're told that it will be renewed and then changed in some interesting ways, things that we'll study a little bit later. Uh, the topography will be different. Uh, there's some additions to the area around Jerusalem, mountains, rivers, and the like that are not there today, and some other fascinating changes that we'll talk about when we get there. Uh, chief among those differences is a temple that will be set up in the kingdom that is unlike any temple that's ever been on earth to this point, And even just the fact of a temple raises some interesting questions, which we will get to in the time that we study that. Meanwhile, Ezekiel also tells us that this new temple will become the centerpiece of life in the kingdom. And just as a little taste of what we're gonna be doing, let me cover that from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter two says this. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that's a reference to the temple, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So as I said, we'll study more about the temple in future weeks, but for now, here's the point. The Lord lives in his temple in the kingdom. That's his home for the thousand years, and we will have our own, but that place has to be repaired and made new again so that we can find our satisfaction in that place. So that's what the first 30 days are doing. Now obviously the world can't be repaired in just 30 days if it was a natural event, so this has to be done through God's supernatural intervention. And of course that makes sense, right? I mean, God was the one who destroyed it supernaturally, so it only makes sense that he's the one who has to fix it for the most part supernaturally as well. But that raises an interesting question. It's similar to the question you could raise studying the creation account. You know, if God has the power to create everything out of nothing, which he did, well then why did he take six days to do it? He could have done it like that. You know, he didn't need any time at all. It's almost conspicuous, it is conspicuous in in the way that he took six days to do something that he could have done instantly. And in the fact that he took so long to create everything, there's a message there, there's, there's something to learn there. And you can learn that in the Genesis study. But tonight, the same question applies here. If he has to remake the earth and it has to be done supernaturally, why does he take 30 days to do it? Well, the numbers themselves guide our understanding a little bit on this. If you look at the number 30, you can break that down into three multiplied by 10. And the number three in the Bible is the number for the Godhead. It reminds us that God is at the center of this work 
and that it is about him. This world to come is centered on him and all that go, that, that's in it will be centered on him. And then the number 10 is the number for testimony in the Bible. And this moment, this 30-day period, and for that matter, the kingdom itself, are a testimony to Jesus, to his righteous rule, and to his right to have what the Father has given him, this inheritance of a kingdom. So God is gonna repair the world, and he's gonna cleanse the temple, and he's going to do it in 30 days, which is a testimony to God at the center of all things. Now, besides repairing the world and cleansing the temple, what else is gonna go on during these 30 days? Well, there's a few things you've already heard about that fit into this time. The first of these we studied last week. Remember, we looked at the dispatching of the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are the first to go into hell. They're killed when Jesus returns. Their bodies descend, into, or their souls, rather, descend into hell. Remember, we read that account in Isaiah of the other unbelieving kings of the world who are already in hell at that point welcoming the spirit of the Antichrist into hell with them and mocking the fact that he showed up there. Well, that had to happen at the very beginning because he's killed on the beginning of Christ's return, right as he returns. So as soon as his body's dead, his soul is in hell. And then he stays there for 30 days. These 30 days we're looking at in the timeline are the period of time he's down there that Isaiah was describing. Then in Revelation 19, we were also told that he would be brought out and put into the lake of fire along with the false prophet. They'd be the first two people to be in the lake of fire and they'd be there by themselves for the first thousand years. That judgment that results in him going into the lake of fire, that judgment happens in the 45-day period. So for the 30 days when God is busy making the earth new and working on the temple, he has them in hell where they're being, you know, cooling their heels, no pun intended, and then as they come out of hell, they're put into the lake of fire. Now, we'll learn more about that place and what happens to them when we get uh, a little further in the, the study next week. Secondly, the other thing that's happened in these 30 days is the armies. Remember them? They were waiting with the Antichrist outside Jerusalem trying to get in the city, and then Jesus came back and kills them all with the sword, and then we heard the birds have to come and cleanse the earth from their bodies. That goes on during the 30 days. So for the 30 days, you have the world being made new, Antichrist in hell, false prophet in hell, birds eating the bodies, cleaning the earth, and so on. All of that is for 30 days. Now, we turn from there, and you might ask me, well, is there any more? Oh, I'm sure there is more, but that's all we have. Now we turn to the 45 days. So we have the Antichrist, false prophet in hell, armies killed, and bodies then consumed. And now we go to the 45 days, the balance of the 75, and there's quite a bit more that we can study there. Now, Daniel 12 told us that this second part would be for blessing for those who could attain to the resurrection, attain to the kingdom. But the number here again, 45, gives us insight into the purpose of why it's this long in the case of this second part. Just like we looked at with 30, 45 is the product of nine and five. Nine in the Bible is the number of judgment, and this is a period of judging in which Jesus sits on a throne and judges for the purpose of determining who will enter the kingdom. And five is the number of grace. And there is grace going on as well in the midst of this judgment because you certainly have some receiving the grace of being resurrected and all of us moving into the kingdom. So Revelation 20 tells us that this period of 45 days will begin with the first judgment. The first judgment being against enemy number one, 
who is Satan. We find that out in Revelation chapter 20, verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. All right, so after Jesus and the army of angels and the saints and so on, all of us, after we all arrive on earth, John says there's still an angel serving the throne room of heaven. You notice we're looking at an angel who comes down from heaven at this point. Well, that just reminds us that the Father is still in heaven. And if the Father is still in heaven, there will still be angels attending to the Father in heaven. And throughout the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, the Father remains separate from the Son in the same way that he was when Jesus was here the first time, in the sense that one part of the Godhead is represented here and another part is in heaven. And in that time, while Jesus is on the earth and the Father is outside our view and in heaven alone, it's a reminder of the fact that this earth still has sin. And because this earth will still have sin during the time of the kingdom, the Father cannot be here in the presence of sin. Moreover, that's why the Son is here. He is still the one and only representative, the one and only way to the Father for those on this earth who are sinful. Now, if you're hearing this, you haven't heard this before, you're wondering why, are there, why is there sin on the earth? We'll get there in, in a time to come. But for now, just understand that's why the Father and the Son are separated. So this angel comes to earth and he's got a mission to bind Satan. He binds the dragon, Satan, and places him in the pit for a thousand years. Now, keep in mind, this could have happened at any time. That is, if it's possible for God to send an angel to earth to bind Satan, then God could have sent that angel on that mission at any time. Self-evidently, he doesn't want him bound until this point. So for those of you who would say that God and, and, and Satan are in some kind of intergalactic battle, some cosmic you know, war that God is waging against Satan and Satan against God, don't fool yourselves. God is in control, Satan is a puppet, and as soon as God wants him in the abyss, he's going. Uh, God has allowed him out for a time and to do things that serve God's purpose in the end. But now that time to be out is gone for a time. He's gonna be bound for a thousand years. Later, as you see, he will be released for a short time. We'll certainly cover that later when we get there. But a description like this, this simple little statement that says he's bound for a thousand years and then released, that guides us into a literal interpretation of a thousand year kingdom. You can't say that the thousand year kingdom is metaphoric when that same metaphor is being used in such a specific sense. The context doesn't allow us to do that. This is a literal thousand year period of which after it's over and time runs out, Satan gets out again. That argues for a literal interpretation of the time. So the holding place for the enemy, we're told, is the abyss. The abyss is the place that we saw mentioned a few times in our study up till now in in the judgments of tribulation. Remember the abyss is not hell, or Sheol, as the Old Testament would call it. Uh, Though it is similar, the uh, abyss is like hell in that it's in the center of the earth, but it's a separate area or chamber or however you want to think about it. And its distinction is this. Hell is the place for human souls. The abyss is the place for demons that are confined there as necessary whenever God chooses to do that. In this case, now he has uh, placed the chief demon, that is Satan himself, in this place for a thousand years. 
Ultimately, when all is said and done, uh, Satan will end up in a permanent place of judgment called the lake of fire, the same place as the demons, the same place as all humanity. So uh, when people talk about going to hell and finding the devil there, that's actually not biblical. Uh, The devil's never in hell, not now, not ever. But there is a time to come called the lake of fire when all who are ungodly, including Satan, are in the same place. All right, next, let's start talking about the citizens that will walk into the kingdom because the biggest part of the 45-day period, the chief purpose of it, is to address those who are blessed, those who will attain to the 1335th day, as Daniel said. And so we need to break down all the citizens in the kingdom. We need to understand who will enter the kingdom and what is the nature of each of these groups as they enter, what kind of people are they? Remember, you have church saints, that's you and me, so we can look at the kingdom graph this way. We have the kingdom, which is this place that we're gonna enter into after we return with Jesus, and as church saints, we're gonna be in there, of course, and we're going to be there in a form that is resurrected because we got resurrected at the rapture. We're already in our new bodies, so we will have all the benefits of a glorified body. The Bible says we will have no sin, we will know all things, we will be without uh, death, Uh, without suffering, Uh, we will uh, never marry, we'll get to that in a minute, but there's there's some other aspects to to that new glorified body, but it is not the body you have now, that's the key, and it does not have sin. Now remember a moment ago I said we also have to deal with two groups that don't have their bodies yet, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. So we have Old Testament saints, now I've colored this arrow without filling in the color because right now they're souls only, they don't have a body. And similarly, the tribulation saints are still in soul form, they haven't been given a body yet. So we have to find where do they actually get given their new bodies? When is their resurrection uh, moment? And Daniel gives us that in chapter 12. So we wanna look at when do these two groups receive their new bodies so that they can walk into the kingdom with us. Daniel chapter 12, verse one says this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So Daniel 12, one sets the context uh, of what we're studying here. Daniel 12, one says, now at that time. So your first job as a Bible student here is to find out, well, what time is Daniel talking about? And that would require that you back up a little bit and go into chapter 11. And if you look at the very end of chapter 11, you find out what this time is because at the end of 11, Daniel is describing how the Antichrist comes to his end at the conclusion of the tribulation which tells you that this time that Daniel's talking about in chapter 12 is the same time, the same time as the end of tribulation. So we're looking here at the last moments of tribulation, and at that time, Daniel says, the Jewish nation will be saved, they'll be rescued by Jesus' return, we just studied that. And then the angel says that at that same time, those who sleep in the ground will awake to everlasting life. Now we know that when you say someone is sleeping in the ground, that's euphemism for being dead, being buried. And Daniel says those who are dead in that sense will be brought to everlasting life. That's a reference to resurrection. Now obviously the souls of those who have died never die. So this is a reference specifically to the body 
being returned to life, or in this case, literally, a soul receiving a new body. So the resurrection of Daniel's people, as the text says, which is a reference to Israel, or we should say it this way now, Old Testament saints. So the resurrection of the Old Testament saints will happen at that same time, that is, at the moment of Israel's saving, and now we know more specifically, it's in the period of that 45 days. Daniel said that's the period of waiting and then attaining. They've been waiting, the Old Testament saints have been waiting as far back as Adam to get their new bodies. And the irony is that we didn't wait nearly as long as they did, and we had our bodies first. We were the bride, the bride got first place. But after that, they come out of the, uh, they, they come down with us into the earth after tribulation is over, and then they still have to wait a little longer, and those who wait and then attain to what they've been waiting for at the 1335th day, well, now they are truly blessed because they enter into the kingdom with what they've been waiting for. And notice that unbelieving Jews are promised disgrace in this same passage, but their disgrace is that of being resurrected for a different outcome. And that resurrection takes place somewhere else. The resurrection moment for unbelievers is not happening here. Daniel 12 just mentions it in passing. We'll study it more in detail later. Isaiah, by the way, confirms that these two moments do not happen at the same time. Let me just show you that briefly in Isaiah 26. Verse 13, Isaiah says, O Lord our God, our masters beside you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. O Lord, you sought They sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As a pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. And thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Now, you should notice in that passage, there's almost a chiastic structure. The the beginning of it and the end of it are opposite. So the first part of that passage describes the end of tribulation, and it goes forward in time from that point. And in verse 13, Isaiah says, Israel will confess the Lord's name by God's power, which we know now is a reference to the way God saves all Israel at the end of tribulation. But you notice in conjunction with that moment, Isaiah says in verse 14, that the unbelievers of Israel will not live, they will not rise, they will not be remembered. So at the moment of Israel's saving, the unbelieving are not coming back to life at that point. But then later in verse 19, Isaiah says, but the dead of Israel who have reason for joy, they will shout for joy. They will, the earth will give birth to them, as it were. It's another way of picturing the dead rising from their grave. So that's a description of the resurrection of Old Testament saints. That's the moment Daniel was just describing in chapter 12. So you have at the beginning this statement that says the ungodly will not rise, and it ends by saying the godly will rise, and that's just a reflection of the fact that you're going to have this separation in time 
between when God raises the souls of the believing and when he gives new bodies to the souls of the unbelieving. And yes, the unbelieving are also going to be resurrected one day. Obviously, that's a later part of our study. We'll get to that in a future week. Meanwhile, just dwell on what we studied there for a moment. Just, just give a moment's thought to the future that we're both gonna know. We're all gonna have this same future. And by that, I mean this. We're going to see for the very first time during this 45-day period, we're going to see the bodies, the living bodies of Adam, uh, Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, David, John the Baptist, you name them, an Old Testament saint that you admire, you're gonna be able to see them for the very first time. In heaven, you might meet them in a soul-based form. I'm not even sure what that's gonna be like, but this moment will be when you can finally shake their hand and look at them, and I think that's just gonna be the most amazing moment for the church and for anyone who's a saint at that point to walk with and interact with men and women whose lives we've been studying in the Bible all the time that we studied. And uh, you know, we're all gonna know God fully at that point, that's what the Bible says. We will be known, uh, we will know him as he knows us now, that is we'll know him fully, we won't have questions about God, it'll all be made available to us. But that doesn't mean there aren't gonna be things we can still learn. And I think principally the things we're gonna be learning uh, in the kingdom will be things from each other on the testimonies we have of what God has done. And there are gonna be people that you and I will just run up to, excited to talk to about their life in the Bible and what they experienced and what they learned, what it was like to be on Noah's boat, what it was like to live in the days of, of Moses and, and the, see the Red Sea and all the rest, right? I personally am gonna be looking for Adam. I have a few questions for that man, but that's just my interest. We'll all have our own audience that we wanna get with somebody in that time, and I think that's worth thinking about, you know, looking forward to. It's a, it's a real future for all of us, and get excited about it. It's coming. So, uh, the first group that needs to be resurrected is the uh, Old Testament saints. The second group that needs to be resurrected will be those who gave their lives during the tribulation, the tribulation saints, who we saw earlier in chapter six as souls under the altar asking to have their deaths avenged by God. And now that takes us back to Revelation chapter 20 when we see what happens for them. Verse four, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So after Satan's binding, remember that happened at the outset of the 45 days, John next sees thrones set up for ruling. And this tells us that this scene in verse four has to be a part of that 45 day period because the 45 days is the part Daniel said is for those who would then attain or receive what they're waiting for, which is the resurrection. So you have to be resurrected in order to receive your uh, reward. So the tribulation saints having been martyred for their faith and until now lived only in soul form, now John says they came to life and that, of course, means they received new bodies. Not that they had ceased to exist, but just that they had uh, not received bodies yet. That's what the term means. So came to life is a description of resurrection. And you could say it this way, although it's not literally true. You could say this is their rapture, but more accurately, this is their resurrection. Next, we consider the Jews who were alive. So let's go to our graph again. So we have the Old Testament saints 
who have been resurrected. We now have the tribulation saints who, according to Revelation 20, verse four, receive their new bodies. This is all happening in that 45-day period. But there are still some other people that need to be considered who are around at this moment after Jesus' second coming. And of course, the most obvious group, the one we studied about for a while as we got into this period of history, right at the end of tribulation, was all the Jewish people on earth. Remember, you had the Jews who were alive being held in Petra, and they were believing, the remnant, And then you had the Jews who were in Jerusalem, unbelieving, and they come to faith on the last day, and they're the ones who bring Jesus back because of their confession of faith. Well, they're still around, right? None of them died. Jesus came back and saved them. So they are all living right now in natural bodies. By that I mean this, they are in exactly the same bodies that we have right now because they haven't died. And as natural-bodied human beings, what does that mean? Well, uh, among other things, it means they're still sinful because we still carry sin in our body. Our flesh is sinful. Uh, They are incomplete in their knowledge of God. And as I mentioned earlier, they can still marry because that's something we do in our current form. And they can have children as a result. We can reproduce in our uh, current form. And if two natural people, that is people like us, marry and have children, well, their children are born not only sinful, but unbelieving. No one gives birth to a believing child in general terms. So we are talking about people who could repopulate the earth with unbelievers because of the natural state that they're in at this point. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest of the Old Testament saints who have been resurrected. They're in the new form that we're in also as the church, but we have these Jews that live through tribulation who are in natural bodies. The question for us to answer right now is what does the Bible say about their future? Do they stay in natural bodies as they enter into the kingdom? Or do they get some kind of rapture moment where they skip over death and move directly into a new body so that they can join us in that way? What's the future for these people? Well, let's get to a few Old Testament texts to understand what the Bible says. First is one you may have read before. Jeremiah 31, 31, 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. All right, this passage is usually well known by Christians because this is where you find the name of the covenant we have in Christ's blood, the new covenant. But you notice this covenant was made with Israel, that is, with the house of Israel, house of Judah, not with Gentiles. Now, we're involved in this covenant because Paul says we were grafted in, but it was made with Israel. And in this covenant promise, Israel is told that they will be uh, a group of people, a nation, that will have perfect obedience and perfect knowledge of the Lord. Verse 33 says that I will write my law on their hearts. And verse 34 says they won't have to teach each other to know me. They'll all know me. So evangelism in Israel will be unknown because it's unnecessary. And uh, hearts will be obedient because they have the law written on them, or so it would seem. If you go to another passage in Jeremiah, you see something similar. In Jeremiah 24, 7, earlier in the book, Jeremiah says, God speaking, I will give them a heart to know me 
For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Again, that would seem to suggest that the Israel of the kingdom will have this devoted obedience to the Lord that is complete and lacks nothing and involves the whole of the nation, 100% of them. And later in Jeremiah, in chapter 50, he describes something similar again, speaking of Israel in the kingdom. He says, I will bring Israel back to his pasture and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan and his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity. Now notice this, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. For the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So uh, Jeremiah says, if you even search for sin in Israel, none will be found. Ezekiel says something similar. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. He says, I will give them one heart, put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. So Ezekiel echoes what we read in Jeremiah. So the point of this seems to be that the nature of Israel and the kingdom will be all uh, believing, all knowing of God, and all obedient to God to the point where they can keep all his law. And then let's go to one final reference. This is from a minor prophet, Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter three, which is speaking about the kingdom, here's what we learn. He says, for then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalted ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a holy and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Now notice this. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. So, This prophet, echoing the earlier one, says no sin, no telling of lies. So when you put all of this together, and there's a lot of other passages, by the way, that we could have looked at that says similar things. And when you lay all that out, it sure does sound like he's saying, that the Bible's saying, that Israel will be in a state of sinlessness, glorified, obedient, and knowing the Lord. And so if you looked at those passages, you might come away very quickly saying, well, it looks as if somewhere in the 45 days, God is going to give the Jews that he comes back for who are alive on the earth, he's going to give them a glorified body. Even though they didn't die, it'll be like the church. He's going to rapture, so to speak, the Jews of tribulation. Because otherwise, how do you account for all of this sinlessness? If you have the Old Testament saints sinless because they've, been, they've died and been resurrected, but you have the Jews who live through tribulation and they're in natural bodies, they're not sinless in that state. You can't put the two together in the nation and be able to say the whole nation is without lying or the whole nation is without doing wrong. That would seem to suggest they both have to be glorified. Okay, but there's a problem with this view. (laughs) And you probably sensed I was gonna go there because I've been equivocating a little bit. And here's the problem. It starts with something Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. Look at what he says about those who are resurrected, those who have glorified bodies. Jesus says, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they, meaning humanity, 
when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus gives us a principle here. And the principle is that the body we receive after we're glorified, that is our resurrected body, is different in some fundamental ways from the body we have now. I mean, the most obvious are that it doesn't have sin, and as a result, it will never die. But in other ways it differs. We will not have need for marriage. Remember that we marry now because the fall was coming. God told Adam it was not good that he be alone. God knew that Adam needed a partner in this uh, lifetime conflict between us and the enemy uh, and our own sin. So he gave us a partner in that respect. And we marry that person to make a lifelong covenant for the purpose of, of, of being stronger together in the face of sin. But now that we have no sin, we don't need that partner to help us with sin, we're married to Christ. So there's no need for a partner anymore for the reason marriage was created. And so we have no need for marriage. And without marriage, well, there's no need for reproduction. God gave Adam and woman the command, along with the rest of creation, that they should multiply and fill the earth. That's not the requirement of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't being populated by us. The full number of resurrected, glorified bodies shows up on day one. There's no multiplying of them during the kingdom. So you don't need to marry, you don't need to reproduce. These things are off limits for the glorified body. Well, what's the problem then? Well, the problem is this. There are passages in the Old Testament that describe the Israel of the kingdom doing things like marrying, having children, and even dying, and even sinning at times. And those passages would seem to conflict greatly with the ones we just read. For example, there are Jews who will serve as priests in the kingdom temple that we're gonna learn more about later. And just like is true in Moses' day, there are rules in this future time for how priests have to operate in the temple. And listen to some of the rules that Ezekiel gives us for how the temple priests of the kingdom period will have to operate. Look at this, Ezekiel 44, verse 21. He says, nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court, and they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. Moreover, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane. Cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall take their stand to judge, and they shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws, my statutes, and my appointed feasts, and and sanctify my Sabbaths. Now, there were several interesting things in that passage. This is a passage about the kingdom law that will apply when we have a kingdom temple, and these are kingdom Jews living and working in that time. And you're told in that day that there will be priests who can marry, but only certain people. They can't marry a divorced woman. They can't marry a widow. They can only marry a virgin, a woman who's never been married. But Jesus said you can't marry if you've been resurrected. Notice also they're judging disputes between Jewish people. Look, if you're sinless, you don't have disputes. A dispute is, by nature, something that comes out of someone who doesn't know the truth or doesn't understand what's right, conflicting with someone who has a different view. I mean, you don't have a dispute if two people always know what's right. They'll always wanna do the same thing. And there's also a need for them to teach the people of Israel. Remember back in Jeremiah 31, 31, there was no teaching to be done. So these observations seem to be inconsistent with the earlier ones. But it gets even more confusing because if we go a little further in that same chapter, this is what we read. The priest shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves. However, for their father, mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for sister who has not had a husband, 
they may defile themselves. After he is cleansed, seven days shall elapse for him. So this is a rule for how a priest is to avoid becoming ritually unclean by coming into contact with a dead body. And they're told here, don't let that happen. Don't go to someone who's dead. Don't defile yourself. But then the text makes an exception. Oh, it's okay if you go for your mother or your father, your brother, and so on. So that raises two issues. The first issue is you have sisters, brothers, children coming from parents. That's offspring. And then on top of that, you have death. You have people who are dying among the Jews. So if they were resurrected into glorified bodies, they wouldn't be dying. They wouldn't be reproducing. They wouldn't have the need to be taught. They wouldn't be in disputes. I mean, all of these things run contrary to what we've been told elsewhere. So the question is, which is it? Are, are the Jews of Israel that Jesus comes back for at the end of tribulation, are they resurrected into new bodies? Are they sinless and glorified? Or do they just stay in their natural bodies and walk into the kingdom in that state, being sinful and all the rest? Well, given the difference in the passages, I think the answer is yes to both. I think what we're concluding here is there are some Jews who will be glorified in the kingdom, and that would be your Old Testament saints. There will also be Jews who enter into the kingdom in their natural state, that is, those who have the ability to die because they're not yet glorified, they have sin because they're not yet uh, resurrected into sinless bodies. What is different about this group, though, from Gentiles in the kingdom is that promise that they will all know the Lord. So what it seems to say is that even among the natural-born Jews, there's no unbelievers. God, in his sovereign grace for that group of people, always brings all Jews to faith, even among the offspring of the natural-born. That would seem to be the one way to reconcile the two, but uh, it's not perfect. There are some other passages that still present issues Uh, We don't have time to get into all of them, but I wanted to show you that that is a challenge in the scripture and that's where we are right now. All right, now, let's do the last group of people. We need to shift our attention to Gentiles. And to do that, we go back to Revelation one more time tonight. Verse five, John writes, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. Now, just a moment earlier in verse four, John described the resurrection of tribulation saints. That's what we read a moment ago. Now in verse five, John says, the rest of the dead don't come to life until the thousand years. Now, let's do a little process of elimination. What are the rest of the dead here that are coming to life after the thousand years? Well, they have to be unbelievers. And we know this because the resurrection of all believers has already been accounted for somewhere in the conversation. Every group of believers you can name uh, has been discussed up to this point, save Gentile believers and Gentile unbelievers. First of all, remember, there are no Jewish unbelievers. When Jesus returns, all Israel is saved. So among the Jewish people on earth, everyone is a believer. They're all gonna go into the kingdom. Whether they're being glorified or not is an open question, but they're all going. Among the rest of the world, you have Gentiles, and in that world, you have two types. You have believer and unbeliever, and those who are unbelievers are not coming to life until the thousand years is complete. So what we're learning is the resurrection of all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, is called the first resurrection. The resurrection of all unbelievers is called the second resurrection. But here's the thing to understand about those two terms. They're not talking about moments of resurrection, They're talking about judgments that are associated with those two groups. Here's what I mean by that. There is a judgment for all believers and there is a judgment for all unbelievers. 
These two judgments happen at different times. The judgment for believers happens first. The judgment for unbelievers happens second. That's what the Bible says. For example, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, well, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God before it moves to the ungodly. And when the Bible talks about a first resurrection and a second resurrection, it's not talking about two moments, it's talking about two judgments. And the judgment for believers is one moment, the judgment for unbelievers is a second moment. And all who are resurrected for the first moment are called the first resurrection. All who are resurrected for that second moment of judgment are called the second resurrection. And the resurrections for the first happen at different times. There are different moments throughout history in which the first resurrection happens because some believers get their bodies before others. But it's all the first because it all leads to the first judgment moment. And that's the reason it's called the first. Paul talks about the believer's judgment this way. Believers are judged according to Paul in this fashion. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him for, or you could say because, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, or you could say paid, for his deeds in the body, whether, whatever he has done, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment moment is the first judgment. It's what the first resurrection leads to. And it is a judgment for reward, not for penalty. And that reward, judgment, is for believers only. So f- here's the reason it's happening in this sequence. If you're going to receive your reward, you have to first be able to use it. So you have to be resurrected in the body that you're gonna live in in the kingdom because that's where the reward is. So he resurrects you first, then you get a reward which you then have available to you in the kingdom. So uh, notice in the the passage I read out of Revelation 25, in chapter uh, 20, verse six, he'll say we have to have a part in the first resurrection. We play a part in the first resurrection because it happens at different times for us, but the judgment is a single moment for all of us. What are the parts of the first resurrection? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 uh, that Jesus was the first fruits of those who are resurrected. So the first to be resurrected in the first resurrection is Jesus. Then after Jesus, the next part of the first resurrection are the two witnesses, the church rather, the church saints. The third part of the two witnesses the fourth part of the tribulations, uh, the Old Testament saints, and the fifth part of the tribulation saints. So you have Jesus, you have the church, the two witnesses, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints. Five parts that are all considered the first resurrection because they're all part of the same first judgment. They're all believers. What leads to the implication then is the second resurrection is everyone else. All unbelievers are in that second moment. All unbelievers have a second judgment We'll study that later. Now, that leads us to that final group I said we have to talk about. We have the Jews who, I'm gonna leave them uncolored at this point just because I believe they may be coming in natural. And the Gentiles, the ones that are both believing and unbelieving, we have one passage that Jesus teaches on how they get handled and it goes very quickly. It starts with Jesus talking in Matthew 25, 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. All right, here's a very well-known passage. Uh, Jesus talking here about what will come about as he returns. And he says the first thing is he gathers all the nations. Now the word nations there in Greek is the uh, Greek word ethnos, and it literally translates Gentiles. Remember, it has to be Gentiles because all the Jews are already with Jesus. He went and got them at Petra, and then he took those with him, and he went and got the other ones in Jerusalem. There's no scattering of the Jews at this point. They're all with him. The Gentiles, on the other hand, are still scattered to some extent. Not very far, because there's not much of the world left, but they're out there, and they're all gathered before Jesus, and the gathering here is so that Jesus can sit on a throne, he says, and judge them. Now, I don't know if this is a literal throne or a metaphoric throne. That is, is he literally sitting somewhere on earth doing this, or is it just a way of designating a judgment moment in language? We don't know either way. Uh, It could be, and I think this is a possibility, it could be that the first 30 days, having already come and gone now, the earth has been cleansed and the temple has been built, and, and the temple has been cleansed. Well, now, in the temple is where Jesus is going to spend his time. Perhaps this throne is him actually being resident in the temple. If so, that would explain why judgment waits till the 45 day period. You have to wait till a throne is ready for your judge before you then go in and do your 45 day period of judgment. And so Daniel says, you're gonna be blessed if you get through that 45 days and you attain to the end of the 75 day period and then enter into the kingdom. That's your proof that you made it through the judgment, you're good to go. Now of course that's not gonna be in any doubt for anyone who comes into that moment in faith. All right, so this judgment is not about whether you're worthy to enter the kingdom, it's on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works as it's always been. Uh, Habakkuk 4 says that the righteous will live by faith. So as Jesus begins to judge, What he's judging here is who among the Gentiles that are still on the earth alive, who among them are his? Who among them are believing? And the metaphor of sheep and goats gets used here to designate each group. And we're told the sheep go on the right, the the goats go on the left. In ancient times, the right hand was the hand of honor, the right hand place was the place of honor, so this is saying the sheep are honored, the goats are not. And then Jesus starts to lay out Uh, to those on either group, why they are going where they're going, starting with the sheep. Jesus says in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. Remember, Daniel says you'll be blessed if you attain to the 1335th day. You are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these are the believers. Clearly, they're going into the kingdom. They are blessed. But let me ask you a question. What would be the fruit of a believer during the tribulation? Remember, especially the second half of tribulation. They're not going to church. I mean, you can't put your shingle out in that day and time and say, I'm a Christian, come to church. Uh, The Antichrist is beheading people who aren't worshiping him. Uh, You can't buy, you can't sell. Uh, You're not sending missionaries around the world. There is no world. There's nowhere to go. Uh, This is not a time in which traditional uh, fruit, spiritual fruit, is evident in the life of a believer. Things are in a very different state of the world. So what would be visible fruit for a believer in that day? Well, Jesus explains in the next passage. Verse 35. Here's the fruit that he says he saw in these believers. He said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. 
naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, well, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, a lot of people, in my experience, have gone into this passage and taken it in some very different directions, and unfortunately, as a result, they completely missed the main point. Uh, Jesus is not suggesting here that these good works get you into heaven, nor is he suggesting that his primary concern for the church is social good works of this sort, though these certainly are nice things to do and might be the right thing to do in some cases. That is not to say this is his, function, his uh, focus for the church or the main mission of the church per se. What he's speaking about here is fruit of a specific kind in a specific time. First, I want you to notice he's describing works of mercy that were done during the tribulation, and that's a key. How do we know these are only things spoken, that he's speaking only about things that were done during tribulation? Well, because, remember, he's talking to believers that just came out of tribulation. And if they had been believing before the tribulation, they wouldn't have been in the tribulation, they would have been raptured. So they have to have been people who came to faith in the time of tribulation. So all of these works were done in that period of history because they didn't, they didn't have faith before that. So these are not, this is not a statement about what Jesus hopes the church will do throughout 2,000 years plus of history. This is about Jesus looking at what a certain group of people did at a certain very limited period of history, that seven-year period. And during that time, because they came to faith, they started to do works of mercy because that's what the circumstances of that time called for. And what were these works of mercy? Uh, they were things like giving people food and water, uh, giving them a place to live, giving them clothing, coming to them in prison. We're talking about the kind of works that you do for people when there's persecution going on and when the world is in turmoil. They did these things, Jesus says in verse 40, for brothers of mine, which is a reference to the Jews of tribulation. These are not references to other Gentiles because these Gentiles would have, not, would have been the ones he's talking to here. These are the Gentiles who did the good works. He's talking here about the Jews, his brothers, who were being persecuted in this time and were unbelieving, and because they were unbelieving and persecuted, they needed help. And they received that help as God provided through these Gentiles who gave them acts of mercy. What's interesting, though, is the question. The question comes back to him because the believers themselves don't understand that they were doing good works. And you need to understand this from the point of view of someone who has come to faith just recently, so they're a new believer, they got no discipleship, they lived in a time where the church was not functioning, and as a result, this is what it looks like to be a believer and not even understand what that means to a large extent. And yet, because the Spirit is in that person and working to move them to things God wants, they produce fruit and they're not even aware of it. They're just doing what they feel like doing for the sake of those who needed it. An act of mercy on the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they've identified themselves. We're at the very end here. Let's do the last little bit, and we look here at what goes on uh, at the very end of Matthew 25. So we have, just to finish that, we have believing Gentiles who are now being welcomed in, the sheep. Finally, Matthew 40, 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. 
Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you do not do it for the one of these, least of these, you do not do it for me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now here's the key. If the whole world is under the Antichrist authority and he's persecuting anyone who does not believe in him, and in particular he's going after two groups, those who keep to the commandments of God, the Jews, and those who have the testimony of Jesus, the Christians. And if you are moved to do acts of mercy for a group of people who are being persecuted, then you're taking your life into your hands. It would be tantamount to somebody hiding a Jew during the Holocaust. You don't do that except that something in you identifies with the fact that these are God's people and I'm supposed to help God's people. It is fruit of your faith. It's not the reason you're being saved by Jesus, it's proof you were saved by Jesus. And conversely, those who did none of those things were part of the other half of humanity who did not know Jesus and had no interest in God's people. So that finishes out our graph. We have now one more group, the Gentiles who, the goats, because they're unbelieving and their lack of fruit is evidence of that, they go into eternal damnation, we're told at that point. So coming into the kingdom, you have five groups of humanity three of which, at least, are glorified, two of which, I would argue, are not, and out of those five, you repopulate the earth. The first three boxes are people who do not repopulate because they're not marrying. The last two, they can marry and repopulate the earth, and that becomes an interesting situation for us. We get to see a kingdom that grows with the number of people, and the people that are populating it are natural, so their babies are unbelieving and sinful. And that's the purpose of our rule with Jesus. We rule over a world that starts to be repopulated by natural people who need rule because they have sin. And we become part of a government that does that. Next week, we get into what the kingdom life is like in all its respects. We'll go through a number of factors, a number of areas of interest in the way the kingdom functions and look at how the dynamic plays out between us and these natural human beings who are in the kingdom with us. Let me pray. Father, our mind turns to these things in great awe and wonder and anticipation. Even as we look out our windows at a world that seems increasingly dark and frightening, Father, we can look into our Bible and see a world that's coming that is nothing but joy, and we are excited for it. And we look forward to that day coming sooner than it ever has been before, Father. Every day is a day closer to that, to that uh, fulfillment, and we long for it. Father, help us get through these days with a good testimony and witness so that we can make the most of those days when they come. And help us to share this good news with others who are also frightened and reeling from the events of our world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.